Good to see you here tonight. And we are, by request, going through a series on why we use the King James Bible. It's an important issue because we're talking about the Word of God. We believe the Bible is our final authority. So it's important. I realize some feel it is a non-issue that all Bibles are essentially the same. But if that were true, then why are there so many different versions to choose from? Are all of these Bibles really saying the same thing? There must be differences because they're called different versions. So is it really just a matter of updating some words? Again, if this were the case, then why have there been so many different versions produced over the last several decades alone? Our language has not changed that much in my lifetime. According to one list, there's many you can choose from. I just grabbed the first one because I'm lazy like that. According to one list that I looked at, there have been 87 whole Bible English Bible translations since 1901. That does not include any of the revisions made. People say, well, the King James was revised. Yes, it was, but it's because we don't use an F for an S anymore. They, it was literally more of letter updates than it was changing something. We'll get to that down the road. So this doesn't include any of the revisions made to those additions. What this means is over a 123-year period, a new whole Bible version has been released on average every 1.42 years. If we include all the revisions, and if we include the translations which were only of the New Testament, which really is at the heart of this, it's the meat of it, and then if we include those other 87 whole Bibles, which obviously included the New Testament, then about every 11 and a half months, a new version of the New Testament has been released in English since 1901. Now, obviously, many of these modern versions were never meant with commercial success to become widely popular. So we aren't familiar with them, but many versions have been well-received. I don't know that the list that I was looking at is all-inclusive. I suspect it is not, but regardless, the numbers I cited to you, that is an alarming rate. We're talking about God's Word. That is an alarming rate. I think it should raise some eyebrows. It should cause us to ask why. And to be fair, I think you're well within your right to ask us why. We are still using a 400, over 400-year-old 400 translation of the Bible. Remember, at the core of this debate is which manuscripts were used to produce that translation. Our contention is there is a pure text and there is a corrupted text. We hold the King James Bible to be translated from pure text while the modern versions, at least the popular ones, are taken from corrupted text. Certainly money has something to do with this. I'll show you that a little bit later in the Bible. 
But certainly that has something to do with this. But we cannot ignore that the mastermind behind the huge amount of English translations is Satan himself. Remember in week one, we considered Satan's strategy. When he first shows up in the Bible in Genesis 3, he does so to Eve to cast doubt on the word of God by saying, Yea, hath God said. And then he proceeded to offer her a revised version of God's word where only slight changes were made, but it altered the meaning greatly. And that's really kind of the emphasis tonight. We saw how Satan attacks God's word through omissions, additions, and substitutions. If you have a new version, you can go through some of your chapters and see that there's a, there's a verse missing. The whole number is missing. It just skips that number. And this is how Satan attacks the word of God. That is still his t- tactic today. And that will become very clear in the future when we compare the different Bible versions side by side. I'll show you the doctrinal differences that have taken place. In the second week, we consider the issue of preservation and how that God is able to preserve his word through copies. And that's important because some people say, well, I only can trust the original. Well, there are no originals left on earth. So what do we have? We have copies. And so we saw from God's word examples of how he preserved his word through copies. And, of course, that carries on through today. And then the last time, our third installment, we considered how there are two sets of manuscripts, one which came out of Antioch and one which came out of Alexandria, Egypt. And without preaching those points, would you prefer to have your Bible from the hub of Christianity in Antioch or the hub of Hellenized mixed religions in Egypt down in Alexandria. And as always, if you missed anything today, please go back and listen. I want you to be well informed so you know what all we've covered. The first three messages I said were foundational. Tonight, I want to begin building the case for how we've arrived at a corrupted text, a corrupted manuscript, and how this came into existence due to textual criticism. And so to do so tonight, we're going to see what God's Word has to say. And then next time, we'll go extra biblical and we'll look at secular history as we look at the time after the Bible and what led to these different manuscripts. So we're going to consider several passages tonight as we examine the attempted infiltration of false doctrine into the first century church. And to do so, we're going to begin in the book of Galatians, if you'll turn to Galatians. Now, we understand Christ is our salvation. Amen. He was born of a virgin named Mary. Modern Bibles will tell you she was just a girl. No, our King James Bible says she was a virgin. We know that's significant. Jesus lived a sinless life. He offered himself as our ransom. He shed his blood for the remission of our sins. He died in our place. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. He ascended and now he is exalted at the right hand of the Father on high. Therefore, when our spiritual enemy attacks, their goal is to attack Christ. This is important as we build in this series. The goal is to go after Christ. Their thinking would be, if we can cast doubt on 
Christ in any way, in any area, then we can try to insert a false teaching to replace that. Now we've casted doubt. Once doubt's been cast, we end up down the road saying, I can't trust this, it was written by men. We've all heard that. A lot of excuses we hear. As we come to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, after he greets them, <laughs> he gets right to the point. Amen. Hey, what's up, y'all? Hey, if anybody's preaching another gospel, let them be accursed. You know, it's like, whoa. <laughs> Good to see you, Paul. So he gives them his greeting. Look at verses, uh, what chapter are we in, Adrian? <laughs> chapter 1. Chapter 1, look at verses 6 and 7. He says, and look, he just said, hello, folks. And then he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. We see Paul is amazed at how quickly they have turned from the grace of Christ in favor of another gospel. Which Paul immediately clarifies, it's not another gospel. Why? Because there's only one true gospel. And he, he's marveling about this. So how did this happen so quickly? Well, in verse 7 we read, there be some that trouble you. Though we do not wrestle against flesh and blood... The enemy is manifested through people. Amen. There be some that trouble you. Well, he's also going to tell them in Ephesians, or us, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So it's being manifested through people. And in Galatia, the enemy was being manifested through false teachers of false doctrine. Those who had been influenced by the devil, who is the father of lies. You're saying, come on, you're being just a little too harsh. This is not harsh. Paul wrote in chapter 3 and verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? We need to take this seriously. False doctrine is something that we are not to trifle with. False doctrine is of the devil. All churches are not the same. And all Bible translations are not the same. No doctrinal difference, listen to me, no doctrinal difference is a minor doctrinal difference. I'm talking the, the fundamentals. They're, they're, they are not minor. They are major differences in God's sight. Because God's word is to be pure. And we're to keep it that way. And Paul is so serious about this that he says in verses 8 and 9 that whoever preaches another gospel, whether it be a man or an angel, let him be accursed. If a so-called church is adding works to salvation if they are adding another testament of Jesus Christ, if they're adding baptismal regeneration, if they're adding membership, 
or they're denying Christ's deity, let them be accursed. I'm not saying we have to be ugly, and I don't say we're the ones that have to go take them down. We'll let God handle that. But Paul's very clear. You let them be accursed. You say, boy, I don't think our modern Christianity is getting soft. Yeah, I tell you what, if Paul was writing the, this letter today, you know what he would be saying? He would say, let the Catholics, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, any denomination that allows baptismal regeneration, you let them be accursed. That's not me. That's God's Word. Therefore, it is me, and I'll happily stand with God's Word. I'm just saying, this is not my opinion. And why would this be the case? Why would we be so firm to write, let them be a curse? Why? Because they remove people from the grace of Christ. And that's what's taking place here in in the churches in Galatia. Notice at the end of verse 7 what their target was. The gospel of Christ. As I've already mentioned, and I'll continue to emphasize, their target is Christ. It, it, it's not the gospel of Peter. It's not the gospel of Paul. There's people who teach these things. <laughs> it's the gospel of Christ. And that's what's under attack. So we see these troublers were seeking to pervert the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? They were seeking to corrupt the gospel of Christ. And our contention is there are corrupted manuscripts which have sought to corrupt the deity of Christ. And that those are the manuscripts which are being used in the popular, modern, accepted Bible translations. The false teachers in Galatia were teaching Christ's grace was not enough for salvation. And with that seed of doubt planted, they then inserted error in an attempt to replace truth. The false teachers in Galatia came along and they were teaching that in order to be right with God, elements of the law had to be added to Christ's sacrificial death, namely circumcision. And beginning in verse 10 through chapter 2, Paul gives them some of his history. I want to notice just a little bit of what he's highlighting. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. And I want you to pick up on this, that there were false brethren who had crept in unawares. They smuggled their way in. They came in privately, privily. They they came in with stealth. And their intention was to spy out their liberty or their freedom in Christ. And we see their purpose was to bring them into bondage. 
Well, bondage to what? The law. What's important about this in light of the manuscript issue and why we use the King James Bible is they came in unawares. And they did not like the freedom that believers had in Christ. And Paul said in verse 5, look at what he says here. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour. Paul is saying here, I'm not about to yield a moment of my time to them. I'm not going to tolerate false teachers at all. Let me put this in context of our series. If you remove Christ's deity, Christ's blood from God's Word, I don't care if it's one verse or ten or all. If you remove it, I'm not going to give that version any space. No, not for an hour. Say, why? That's what Paul's defending here. Well, in verse 16, as Paul is recounting an event which took place later between him and Peter, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. He's just laying this out. He's making it as clear as he can. And then Paul, in my opinion, he just drops the hammer here in verses 20 and 21. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice this. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Paul says it's all about Christ. That ought to bring you comfort, really. Paul knew the grace of God is all sufficient. I'd be honored if you joined our church, but that ain't going to save you. I'd love to see you get baptized, but that ain't going to save you. I'd love for you to work in our church and do good things. That ain't going to save you. Paul here is saying, the, the grace of God is all sufficient. I'm not going to frustrate that. Paul knew our standing before God is all about what Christ has done for us and nothing that we can offer. Paul knew our boasting is to be in the cross and not of our, ourselves. And Paul knew that Christ makes us free, not the law. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Since the King James maintains Christ's deity throughout because it maintains God's way of salvation and maintains God's pure word, I'm going to stand fast with the, the word of God that brought me liberty. You say, well, our new versions really teach it. I'll show you. I'm not going to get entangled with a version where the grace of God has been frustrated, no matter how minor that change may be. Now, I've taken a little bit more time here in Galatians because I want you to understand, this is serious. Paul said, I'm not putting up with it. I'm not going to deal with it with him, not even for an hour. It had to be dealt with. 
I'm not going to deal with false doctrine is what he's saying. And so we need to know how serious this is. We should not allow any false doctrine, period. Amen. You know what Paul's going to say in Galatians 5, 9? A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Well, let's move on. And for sake of time, I'll try to move faster. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 14 with me, please. It says this. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So what do we learn from this? We need to be anchored in truth because the winds of false doctrine are blowing about seeking to carry somebody away in those false teachings. And the fact that it's talking about the winds of doctrine tells me that there are many false doctrines out there. And we have to be careful. Just a side note, but very important. Did you know every time that the Bible uses the term, the King James Bible uses the term doctrines, plural, it is always in a negative sense. It says this in the Bible. The doctrines of men. Doctrines of devils. Strange doctrines. But true doctrine in the Bible is always used singular. Now this is fascinating. Because we don't have a set of doctrines. Plural. We have a doctrine. We have one doctrine. The people were astonished at Jesus' doctrine. In Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Paul told Timothy, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. There's a lot of other verses we can look at. Obviously, there's times like this when the singular is used in a negative sense. But every time that it's used plural, it is talking about false doctrines. Now, that should help us understand why Paul could say a little leaven, leaven if the whole lump. Because all it takes is one erroneous teaching that leavens it all. And once you allow one false teaching in, you've corrupted it because we have one doctrine. Is everybody tracking this? Therefore, if modern versions take away from or add to, then the doctrine, singular, has been Corrupted. But what I really want to point out here is how these false doctrines in Ephesians 14 are by the slight of men. They are by cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So by fraud and by trickery, the enemy lies in wait, ready to mislead any he can through error. Satan appeared in the Garden of Eden. The Bible says he was more subtle than any beast of the field. And very subtly, he changed the word of God. 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. What's being attacked? Christ. The simplicity of salvation. Let's muddy it up. Let's frustrate grace. Let's add something to it. 
So don't be deceived into believing this debate is just about one word here or one word there on which Bible you should trust. Satan works through subtlety. And I'm emphasizing their craftiness because changes happen with subtleness. And this is what we're going to discover has happened when we begin to compare the authorized Bible to modern versions. Now let's go to the book of Jude. In verse 3, notice what the Bible says in this letter by Jude. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Why? Look at verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude says, I was going to write to you about our common salvation. But the common salvation was under attack. And as a result, he writes instead about how they needed to earnestly contend for the faith. Singular, by the way. What's happening here? The original was under attack. The original was being changed. And we see again how there are those who are sneaking in unawares. And we also see again how serious this is because Jude calls them ungodly men. They were turning the grace of God into a license to sin. Lasciviousness. It has to do with carnal lust, but it is the license to do it because we're under grace. And don't miss how they denied the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in all of this, Christ is the target. Now go please to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. As Peter pens this epistle, he knows the day of his death is approaching. He says in verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. And Jesus had told Peter over in John 21, when you were young, you could take yourself wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, someone's going to carry you to where you don't want to go. And we know Peter ended up dying. He was martyred for his faith in Christ, as Jesus said. You can see that in John 21, 18 and 19. I gave you the Brooks version. (laughs) Uh, All right, well, I thought that was funny since we're talking about different versions. You know, let me just read it to you so nobody... Sends me hate mail, okay? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. 
And so Peter, in knowing that his time upon this earth is coming to an end, he feels the weight of the responsibility of his apostleship. And he knows he has to encourage the saints, hang on to the truth. Hang on to the truth. Look at verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Look at verse 13. He says to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. In verse 15, he says to have these things always in remembrance. He says in verse 16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. In verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereby ye do well to take heed. And he's talking about possessing the truth of God's word. And how did we get God's word? We're told in verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And remember, chapter divisions, verse numbering, it's been added by man to make it easier to find a passage. I'm thankful for that, but it's not Holy Ghost inspired. So, when you get to the end and we come to chapter 2, we see chapter 2 begins with a conjunction, which is telling us it is tying back to what we just read at the end of chapter 1 about the prophecy came through holy men as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. So after stating that we have the truth of the Scriptures, Peter goes on to say, there will be those who will come in secretly, and they will bring in damnable heresies. And this is the same pattern I've been highlighting all night. And look at what one of these heresies are. Even denying the Lord that bought them. We see again, Christ is being attacked. Notice the beginning of verse 5. And through covetousness, they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you. Listen, if you don't think words are important, and if you think it's okay to just randomly shift these words around, no, no, no. Words are, words are in, the, in the Bible for a reason. Amen. You know, Paul made it clear, one letter can make a difference. Seed or seeds. And this says with feigned words. What, what, what's their problem? They're greedy. And they're going to use false words to make money off of God's people. That's what's being said. Sounds an awful lot like the merchandise off of modern Bible versions today. Feigned words to make merchandise of you. We got to hurry. The temperature's rising. I didn't know if it was just me feeling tense. No, it's getting hot up in here. 
Now, here's my point. When it comes to corrupted text, we know from what we covered tonight, false teachings and heresies were creeping in to the first century church. We would describe them today as textual critics. They are critical of God's text or critical of God's word of truth. And it is the spirit of textual criticism which has led to the different versions of the Bible. And we're going to build upon this more next time, but the spirit of textual criticism was obviously alive and well in the first century. But at the time, it was more difficult for those teachings to become cemented, to take root. Why? Because you had the apostles still around, and they could refute these things which is what we saw Paul doing with boldness to the churches in Galatia. You see, the apostles were eyewitnesses. And therefore, they had all the credibility. Remember, Peter said, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. I love what John says, the apostle John in 1 John 1, 1-3. That which was from the beginning, we have heard. We have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, you know how it is. If I came up to you and I said, I know the Lord because I've been born again. I have His Spirit indwelling me. I have His Word. And you're listening to me. And then all of a sudden, John walks up. And when John comes up, he wants to talk to you. And he begins to tell you how he knew Jesus in the flesh. John would be able to say, brother, with all due respect... You may know Christ, but I have audibly heard Him speak. I have seen Him with my eyes. I have looked upon Him. My hands have touched Him. And then He could take us over to the Last Supper. And He could say, I leaned on His chest. I heard the heartbeat of heaven. John could say, I was there when they lifted Him up on that old rugged cross. I saw His precious blood. Who are you more likely to tune into? Me, who after some 2,000 years of our Lord walking this earth is telling you, I know Christ. Or John, who can say, no, I beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He literally got to walk with the Lord and he watched as he performed miracles and all the rest. I think you would tune into John. And I would want you to because that's who I would turn into. Now, according to tradition, all the apostles but John were martyred in the first century. We know Peter was killed because Jesus said it would happen. We know James was killed. The Bible records Herod running him through with a sword. But it is believed John lived to see a natural death, living the longest, maybe even as long as to around 100 A.D. So before that time, 
it was far more difficult for false teaching to take root because you had these men who were still around that knew the Lord. And so if a false teacher came in and something like that was trying to take root, they could refute that doctrine with great credibility. So when a false teacher came along and they tried to mix in law and frustrate the grace of God, the apostles were there to refute it. When false doctrines sprang up, the apostles could uproot them. When men crept in unawares, the apostles could call them out. When they targeted Christ, they were there to deal with it. And as we've seen tonight, the attacks were relentless. Because that's how Satan is. And before John's death, he wrote in 1 John and 2 John how the spirit of Antichrist was already in the world. He said there's many Antichrists already. What's Antichrist? Those who deny that Jesus was the Christ. That He was God in the flesh. Matthew Henry dates 1 John to around 80 A.D. Most place it even later around 85 to 95 A.D., which is certainly nearing the end of John's life. The Revelation was likely written around 95 A.D. And we know from the seven letters to the seven churches how false teachings had already crept into some of the churches. The church in Pergamos had already those who had held the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The church in Thyatira allowed that woman Jezebel who calleth herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. With the spirit of Antichrist already in the world and continuing to grow after John's death, who was the last of the apostles, it made the road to apostasy through false teachers and false doctrine easier to adopt. And sure enough, as we'll see next time, men came on the scene who are referred to as church fathers in many circles, but in nearly every instant, that is hardly the case. Some of these men, they rose to prominence in the second century, and they were nothing like the apostles at all. And they did bring in damnable heresies, which Peter warned of. But there were no longer apostles around. To, to refute them. And I can imagine how things became a matter of opinion. Isn't that what you hear today? No, that's your opinion. Even though I'm giving you God's Word. No, 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 that's your opinion, they say. So we can see how that... Now, if you had somebody walking around that said, no, I, I, I knew Jesus. I was there when He said, follow me. Anyway, and so all of this is setting the stage for next time when I'm going to attempt to trace this line of textual criticism which led to corrupted manuscripts. And the spirit of textual criticism, as we've seen tonight, was already around in the first century. But it gained momentum in the second century. As the apostles went off the scene, False doctrine came on the scene. And with false doctrines, there were those who began to modify the Word of God to suit what they wanted it to say. And that's how we ended up 
with corrupted manuscripts. With no more eyewitnesses left, the only way to battle against false teachings was through the pure Word of God. And isn't that exactly what we're still doing today? I believe we have the pure Word of God. And this is what I use to refute false doctrines. Well, they had the same problems as we did. So until next time, let's pray.